I hope that's your prayer. Um, we are in a series right now that we've called Redefined. And um, it's based on a book that's written by Arden Bevere called Redefined. If you want to pick up a copy, there are uh, copies available out in the lobby. And today we're going to cover the, the information from Chapter 5. Last week, um, Heather did a great job of covering uh, Chapter 4 and teaching us ways to overcome doubt um, by being honest with God, refocusing on Jesus, and getting back out of the boat. Uh, if you missed it, you can find it online, you can find it on our podcast, um, you can go back and re-listen to that, and we, we try to cover more information um, in these services than are just the things in the book. We don't want to just regurgitate um, the information that Arden has shared with us, and so um, hopefully well, we've been doing a good job of that, And uh, but today as we look at chapter 5, this is called An Awakened People, An Awakened People, and what Arden talks about in chapter 5 is regret. Now, I would assume that all of us at some point in our lives have felt regret. Um, sadness, Arden defines it as sadness or disappointment over the past actions or events. And so at some point, we've made a wrong decision, we've missed an opportunity, uh, maybe it's been some level of abuse or betrayal that we've experienced. And so at some point in our lives, we have um, experienced regret. And I don't know about you, but he, as he brings out in the chapter, that regret actually can be something positive. I don't know, th this was new for me. Um, I've never thought of regret as something that can actually propel us into the, the future that God has for us. And so it's almost like we need to welcome regret into our lives in some way, or how do we process the regret that we're, we're covering? Because regret either can chain us to the past, or it can become a catalyst to launch us into the future that God has for us. And so some of the regret we can that we've experienced, you know, we can laugh off. Um, it's maybe I got a bad haircut, maybe I colored my hair wrong, maybe when you look back over your old high school yearbook and you look at how you dressed back then, um, there's a level of regret, but it's not like a debilitating level of regret. It's something that we're like, oh, I can't believe I actually did that. Um, but some regret is a little bit um, harder to overcome because it's, it's maybe decisions that we made that have permanent consequences. And sometimes it's hard to let ourselves off the hook. Or, again, sometimes it's things that have been done to us, no fault of our own, um, abuse that we've suffered at the hands of someone that maybe raised us or someone that was in our lives as a child or different experiences that we've had throughout our lives. But how we deal with that regret uh, really is going to determine what happens in our future. Because while we're not able to control everything that happens to us in our lives or the, the decisions of other people, we can ultimately control the choices that we make of how to handle that moment and how to handle that situation. And I love that Arden differentiates between the mistakes that I'm responsible for and the, the mistakes that really are a result of other people's choices. Because there are times in our lives where it's good to seek counseling. It's good to seek maybe some input from other people in our lives because some situations that we face are hard to overcome alone. And we really need to make sure that we differentiate between 
the choices that we control and maybe the things that have been thrust upon us that we, maybe we need some help learning how to, uh, to overcome. And so uh, today we're really going to focus on what we can control, the choices, the decisions in our lives uh, that we need to, to look at. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Arden brings out this passage of Scripture in his book, but I, I added a few more verses because I want to get a little bit of the context. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the church that's in Corinth, and if you remember from Trust the Story, this is actually, we believe, his fourth letter, even though we call it 2 Corinthians. This is his fourth letter to them, and he, he's writing to them about, in reference to one of his earlier letters, because he had written them a letter about some things that he saw in their lives that they needed to correct, that they needed to change. And as he's writing, he says here in verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. See, there's sometimes that we, even as parents, we, we deal with things in our kids and we see that it causes them pain. Or maybe we, we have a conversation with someone that's a difficult conversation to have and it causes them pain or it maybe brings friction into the relationship. But we knew it was something that had to be dealt with. And at first, we, there's this sense of regret. Um, but as Paul says, you know, it's, it's a good regret because it's going to produce something good. And he goes on to say, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The word sorrow actually carries with it the, the definition of regret even. And so how we process or how we, we deal with the sorrow that we feel as a result of our actions or a result of our circumstances, it's what we do with that. That makes the difference. I'll show you the, I'll put up here on the screen. Um, Arden brings out in the, the book this process. So godly sorrow, there's a mistake or we find ourselves in some situation. And then there's remorse that leads to repentance and then ultimately into victory. The word repentance, uh, I'll disagree with him in his book because he uses the word repentance as an emotion. Um, you know, we have a feeling of repentance. Uh, repentance is not a feeling and it's not an emotion. It's a choice. It's a decision. The word repentance actually means to turn. So godly sorrow leads us to repentance. When we experience sorrow over something that's happened, it leads us to change. It leads us to, to make a decision to turn and not walk in that path any longer. That's what repentance is. And so um, that's how we look at this mistake, remorse, repentance, victory. But there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Uh, as he brings out in the chapter, when we want to start um, this path of godly sorrow, we have to take responsibility. We have to own the decisions, the mistakes. And other than the situations in our lives where we've experienced abuse or something that's totally not our fault, most of the time, when we find ourselves in a decision, we bear some level of responsibility for that decision. Even if, the, even if it's a betrayal, 
there are times that we bear a level of responsibility even when we've been betrayed by another person, but we tend to fixate on the other person's behavior and not our own. And that's kind of what we're going to unpack as we walk through the day because the first thing that we need to do or the first step we need to take to get to repentance is admit there's a, a process in my life. There's something that needs to change. I mean, if repentance means change, then I have to acknowledge there's something in my life that needs to change. There's a mistake. There's a flaw. There's a fault. And we don't like to make we don't like to make mistakes and we don't like to admit that we've made mistakes. There's a level of pride. There's sometimes a level of insecurity because if we if we're insecure about ourselves, we're not rooted in our identity in Christ. Um, admitting that I've made a mistake only adds to my sorrow. It only adds to my regret. And so what I tend to do then is to blame others or blame my circumstances or try to just avoid the consequences that come as a result of my bad choice. But none of, all of that is worldly sorrow. All of that is is not dealing with, in a godly way, the decision to to bring us to that place of repentance. And so Arden brings out in the chapter a lot of things that we need to be awakened to, but we're only going to cover three of them this morning. We're going to cover being awakened to our faults, awakened to God's mercy and grace, and awakened to growth. Those are the three things that we're going to talk about. There are two main emotions when we're talking about regret, and uh, Arden brings it out in the chapter. There are two main emotions that, that come with regret. One is sadness, and one is anger. And if you've read the chapter, or if you're familiar with the story of David, and David and Bathsheba, um, David sees a woman bathing. He's the king of Israel. Sees a woman bathing. Uh, he brings her to the palace. He uh, has sex with her. They, she gets pregnant. So as a way to cover it up, he tries to bring her husband back home from battle and get him to go in and and be with her so that, you know, then he doesn't look responsible. And Uriah won't go in and he won't abandon his post as a military man. He wants to go back on the battlefield and he's not going to take pleasure when all of his brothers are out there fighting. So David gets him drunk, hoping that even in an inebriated state, and the crazy thing is, is, uh, Uriah in an, in an inebriated state actually displays more character than King David, um, and he won't he won't do it. And so then David has to even go further to cover it up, and he puts Uriah on the front lines of the battle and has the rest of the army draw back so that he's killed. Now, um, maybe you've never experienced regret like that in your life, but David uh, doesn't really admit to this. He doesn't deal with it. He carries it around, and we're going to read in a little bit some of the emotions that come when we don't admit to our mistakes because he doesn't want to own up to the consequences. He doesn't want to face what's coming. But when we recognize God's mercy and grace, we can accept the consequences that are coming because we know that God is going to minimize them as much as he can because his His desire for us is not to destroy us or to, to lead us into death. And so we have to come to that place where we're going to own up to our choices, because if we don't, then the sadness, the sorrow turns into anger. And if you know from the story, the prophet comes to him and he tells him a story about a man who has one sheep and he uh, another man has a lot of sheep and he's going to make a banquet for his friend. And he, instead of taking one of his many sheep, he takes the one sheep 
from the, the, young, the older man and he, he kills that sheep. And David responds in an interesting way. He's so angry. When we do not admit our flaws and our mistakes and we do not get awakened to the grace and mercy of God in our lives, that actually becomes a poison within us and we actually become very angry at people who are guilty of the same thing we are. I want you to think about that for a second. When we live a lifestyle where we are not letting regret, godly sorrow, have its work in our lives. As Christina just told us, uh, all of us fall short. All of us have weak areas. Um, the, the scripture tells us God disciplines those he loves. And so if he needs to discipline us, there ought to be feelings of regret and sorrow that we experience regularly in our lives. And if we're not experiencing that, sometimes it can be masked by anger. And we start to get angry at other people for the way they're living or the way they're treating us. And all along, it's really us that's the guilty one. It's not that they're not guilty. They are. But we need to make sure we're letting that regret, that godly sorrow, have its work in our life. And so we have to come to the place where we recognize or we're awakened to our faults. Now, we all know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a very familiar verse to us. And that's easy for us to say, yeah, we all have faults. <laughs> yeah, but what are they? What are the things I need to deal with? Maybe Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us have turned to our own way. And then we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This one we like more, we like this one better because it uh, makes us feel better. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And so, yes, we recognize we've, we have flaws. We recognize that everyone has done this. So we come to Christ and we become a new creation. Um, and I know that we know this, but I don't know that we live like this in our daily lives. We don't really become a new creation overnight, at least practically. I mean, before God, we are new creations. He sees Christ's sacrifice for us, and it's, we're totally in right standing with Him. We're new creations. But I still lose my temper. I still say things about other people that actually put them down instead of build them up. I talk about them behind their back. I still make mistakes. I still look at things I shouldn't look at or, or do things I shouldn't do. And we wrestle with the working out of this verse. It's okay to admit we've made mistakes. It's okay to bring our flaws and our weaknesses into the light. Because if we don't, we can't get to the place where we walk in repentance and then ultimately in victory. My righteousness comes from Christ. It does not come from my works. It's not my behavior that makes me in right standing with God. It's the work that Christ has done for me. And if I attach my righteousness or my right standing with God to my behavior, then I won't want to admit that I've made a mistake. When David concealed his mistakes. Psalm 32 gives us a little bit of insight. Psalm 32, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all 
day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, if we're not regularly allowing the godly sorrow that should be a part of our lives to show us the mistakes that we're making, to bring us to that place of repentance, we're actually going to feel like David at some point, and we're going to be in the midst of despair, anxiety, depression, anger, bitterness, all because we won't bring into the light the things that need to be brought into the light. James chapter 5, New Testament verse, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. In fact, if we're not regularly confessing our sins, I'm starting to wonder, why not? I mean, if the Lord disciplines those He loves, then there ought to be something that I need to confess today. There ought to be something I bring into the light today. Uh, in fact, it's probably more of a mark of maturity to bring something into the light than to have nothing to bring. See, in our world, when our children mature, they become less and less dependent upon us as children. But in the kingdom of God, to become mature isn't to be less and less dependent upon our father. It's actually to become more and more dependent. It's actually to recognize more and more the flaws and the sins that he wants to draw out of my life because he wants me not just to be in right standing with him, but to put him on display in all of the things that I do and say. But if I hide over them, I can't do that. And it actually poisons me in such a way that it can cause all kinds of emotional and physical problems in our lives just because we won't bring them into the light. We do not live in a culture today that likes to take personal responsibility for our actions. We rather would like to find someone else to blame for everything that we're experiencing or even for our wrong decisions. I mean, this is not a new thing. This is inbred in us. Um, even as children, it doesn't take long until we maybe lose our temper or we hit our brother or sister and our parents are like, well, why did you hit them? Well, they made me mad. Well, Why'd you hit them? They made me do it. Well, they didn't make you do it. It was a choice. And we, we understand that, but yet we don't always process that and live it out in our daily lives. And as, as a church, as Restoration Church, we want to create a culture where confession of sin is easy, where it actually people want to be able to, to spill their guts as it is or, or put out on the table what it is that needs to be put out so that they can be healed from it. But... A church actually is, is a group of people. So the only way we can create a culture of confession is if we are individuals who in our individuals' lives practice a culture of confession. That won't happen for us as a corporate church if it's not happening for each of us as individual believers. You know, there are times where people will leave a church and they'll be like, oh, that church was so unfriendly. Well, did you know that you were a part of it, so... I mean, the only way a church can be friendly is for each of us to take responsibility for the friendliness of the church. But a lot of times, again, we put the responsibility on someone else to do the work and not on ourselves. And we want to be careful that we let 
the Holy Spirit, we let our friends, we let people in our lives help us see these things that need to be brought into the light. So we need to be awakened to our own flaws, our own faults, but we also need to be awakened to the mercy and grace of God. Uh, a lot of times we, again, don't like to admit our mistakes because we fear the consequences that are going to come. And when we ask for God's forgiveness, um, it doesn't always take away all the consequences. But I believe God minimizes, when we confess our sins openly, God minimizes the consequences to a place where he's got our best in mind. I mean, we still may have to uh, recover trust in a relationship. We still may have some level of, of um, punishment or consequence that we have to own up to or walk through. But I believe God helps us. He gives mercy and grace. That's who he is. Uh, I read from Lamentations chapter 3 earlier on. It is because of the Lord's loving kindness that we are not consumed because his mercies don't fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The word mercy is not received. It means not receiving what is deserved. Not receiving what is deserved. See, all of us deserve God's punishment. We all deserve death. But none of us get that. At least not right now. God is pouring out his mercy on us all today. He never treats us like our sins deserve at least up to this point. There will come a day uh, of judgment where we will have to give a reckoning. And if we have not put faith in Christ, the Bible says, then you have to pay the penalty for your sin. If you don't accept the penalty that Christ paid for your sin, then you have to accept the penalty yourself. And until that point, God is pouring out mercy on our lives. Whether we're awake to it or not, He's doing it. But the, the only way that it can really provide benefit to us is to awaken to it, to acknowledge it. We also need to receive his grace. The word grace means to receive something that is not deserved. So we don't receive the punishment we deserve, mercy, and we do receive God's favor, God's kindness, right standing with him. We do receive grace because of what Christ has done for us. Ephesians 2 verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. So we get this right standing with God. Arden in the chapter writes this, our relationship with God is based on grace and mercy and not on our own actions. That is the message of the cross. We don't draw near to God on our own merit, but through faith in Jesus. In order to respond properly to regret, we must know that our worth goes beyond behavior and is instead rooted in our relationship to God. If we tie worth to performance, we are setting ourselves up for failure. Maybe not at first, because we can usually live for a while without making any major mistakes. But sooner or later, we are going to fail. And if our sense of worth is dependent upon our behavior, the shame of failure will pull us to the ground and hold us there. Our worth is based on two facts. First, we are made in God's image. Second, we can identify ourselves with Jesus and receive new life in Him. The life we now live, we live in Jesus. That means that even when we are less than perfect, His perfection is still ours. Even when we show our flaws, His identity is still what counts. 
Again, this does not give us license to fail or an excuse to sin, but it does give us reason to rise again when we inevitably do both. Our value in God's eyes is as unchanging as His love for us because we have been forgiven, chosen, and accepted by Jesus. We have to be awakened to His mercy and His grace. The last one that we need to be awakened to is growth. There are two words that Arden uses in the chapter to talk about our growth, and those are the words humility and the word wisdom. He talks about how our regret, our remorse, motivates us to growth, and it's in wisdom and it's in humility that we build our future, that we grow. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Humility is a hard word to define, but I would define it as the correct view of God, the correct view of ourselves, and the correct view of others. Having a correct view of God, correct view of ourselves, and a correct view of others. Here's how I would define wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to do the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. As you read through the book of Proverbs, the wisdom book in the Bible, uh, you'll find that sometimes they talk about doing the right thing, but sometimes they talk about doing the right thing at the right time. Sometimes they talk about doing the right thing in the right way, and sometimes they talk about doing it for the right reasons. And all of those are tied up in this word wisdom. If I decide that I want to mow my neighbor's lawn in order to serve them, that's the right thing. I mean, the right thing is to do something good for someone else. If I do it on Saturday morning at 5 a.m., it's no longer the right thing because I didn't do it at the right time. Does that make sense? Now, if I know that my neighbor is a particular guy and uh, he mows his lawn in a certain way, but I just don't think that's real important, and I'm going to mow his lawn for him, but I'm just going to do it my way. I'm not really serving him. Because now I didn't do it the right way. And the right way is defined by how he wants his lawn done. If I decide to mow my neighbor's lawn because my neighbor has a snowblower and I don't, and uh, I'm assuming that he's going to repay the favor in the winter and snowblow my driveway and he doesn't, well, now I've done it for not the right reason. And I've put some expectations on it that shouldn't be there. And so practically speaking, I know that's, Maybe a, a silly illustration, but I think it helps us to see that it's not just doing the right thing that matters. And as Christians, we're all about doing the right thing. I want to do the right thing. I want to say the right thing. I want to put this speech together. In the, the uh, It's the right thing. But if it's not in the right time, and it's not in the right way, and it, it's not for the right reason, it, it's no longer the right thing. And regret, hopefully, godly sorrow will produce in us a change that leads us to walking in humility and in wisdom. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, He who restrains his lips is wise. So the ability to, you know, say the right thing is important, but making sure that we say it at the right time is wisdom. Making sure that we say it in the right way for the right reason is also wisdom. At Restoration Church, our, our logo is a table, and 
the reason that we chose the table is we want to create a culture within our church where people come around the table and they bring themselves to the table just as I am, and I have a place, I have a seat, I have a relationship with people, and I can be me, and I can come to that table, and we can have relationship, we can have conversation, and we're on equal footing with one another. And that's based on the fact that that's what Jesus did. Jesus broke into a culture where to sit at a table with someone um, meant you were accepting their behavior. So Jews did not eat with sinners. They did not eat with Gentiles because that would show a sign of approval that they didn't want to give. And yet Jesus comes and he sits at a table and it causes all kinds of problems for the religious people. They don't understand how a righteous rabbi can sit at a table with all of these people and basically give approval to them. But what Jesus is showing is he came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to meet people where they are and call them to a higher plane of living. Jesus, at every meal he had, produced repentance in someone's life. I mean, if you think of the time that he met with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, and of course all the religious people, he's eating with tax collectors, he's eating with scum, what's he doing? And Zacchaeus stands up and he repents, he changes. If I've taken things that don't belong to me, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to make retribution. I'm going to change the way that I'm living. So I don't know what happened at that table. I don't know the conversation that Jesus had. In some ways, I wish we did. Like, what do we do? But maybe it's just sitting at the table with someone. And I don't think Jesus sat there and said, Zacchaeus, you know that the way you're living is wrong. You know that taking more money from people is wrong. See, I don't know about you, but if I sat at a table with you today and pointed out five things you're doing wrong before I ever said anything nice, how are you going to feel in that moment? I mean, our relationship is not going to go very far. And the chances of you actually hearing what I'm saying and repenting of any of it is probably very slim, even though it's all the right thing. We as a culture, so then we as individuals, want to learn how to live this out. And I don't know. In fact, when we, we, we chose the table, I'm like, I don't even know what to tell people that means. And sometimes, I'll just be honest with you, I'm like, I feel like we should figure out what that means before we put it on there. But sometimes we put it on there knowing that's where we want to go, but we just don't know how to get there yet. But we're going to keep working to get to that place. See, creating this culture of confession, this culture of mercy and grace, or breaking down the barriers, is something that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, and I, I didn't put the passage on the screen, but it's probably a familiar one to you. Jesus says, don't judge or you will be judged. Um, and we misuse that in our culture today. And what Jesus is teaching in these six verses at the beginning of this chapter um, is the way to go about correcting one another in the body of Christ. Because, you know, he says that your brother that you're looking at has a speck in their eye. They have something that they need to deal with, but you have a log in your own eye. So what Jesus is teaching us is we have to live in a culture of admitting our flaws, recognizing that just because I have a perspective doesn't mean it's the only perspective or the right perspective. And so I have to make sure before I try to correct someone for something I see in their life, I have to make sure that I'm living or creating a culture in my own life of correction where I allow 
other people to, to speak and correct me, where I allow the Holy Spirit to correct, where I let regret and remorse have its work in my life. Because Jesus does say, you do need to help your brother see the speck in his eye. Because I'm going to tell you something here today. There's not one of us in this room that will see all of our flaws just with us and the Holy Spirit. You won't. God designed us to, to need one another in the body of Christ because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. He's in community by Himself. And He's created us to be in community. And if you think that you, all you need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit, you're going to miss things in your life. We are called into community with one another. And so learning how to do this in our lives is very important. But it's not just going to happen by itself. We have to really dig into this, this idea of community. One of the things that makes it hard is because back in the Bible days, you have to understand that community for them was different than church today. For most of us, we see each other on Sunday. Uh, we don't always see each other throughout the week. We don't interact on a regular basis. The early church actually met together every day. They had their meals together every day. They met together for prayer every day. They were with each other every day. And so if they were going to point out something in each other's life, one, they were doing all kinds of one another stuff. They were loving one another and serving one another on a regular basis. So whenever I needed to point something out to someone, I've already built up the relational equity that's needed because I, I'm serving them and loving them every single day. For us, if we only see each other once a week and every time we see each other, all we talk about is what each other's doing wrong, you know, we're not going to have a very strong relationship. Now, how do we live this out in our culture? I don't know, because we're not going to have meals together every day. We're not going to be together every day. Our culture isn't wired that way. But we have to understand that just because I have the right to point out something in someone's life doesn't mean I should. Just because I see it in someone's life doesn't mean I have the right perspective because I'm not with them every single day. I see a sliver of their life, not their whole life. And so I want to make sure I have God's perspective on them and their life before I ever point out the flaw that I see in their life. And so there's a right way and a wrong way to, to handle this, to walk this out. Um, when you look at Dave, Nathan, Nathan comes before David, and he doesn't just come in and say, uh, hey, I got a word from the Lord for you. Uh, what you did with Bathsheba was wrong. Do you ever wonder why not? I mean, maybe it's because he was afraid how the king would react, so he thought he would use a story. Maybe, um, maybe he valued David or honored David in such a way that he didn't just want to come in and point the finger, but he wanted to, to draw David into the conversation to help David to process it. Because if someone walks up to you and says, hey, uh, what you're doing is wrong, the, def the defenses go up. I don't care how spiritual or religious any of us are, the defenses automatically go up. So maybe Nathan is looking for a way to bring the defenses down so that what he's about to say to David can be heard because he wants David to repent. He doesn't want David to be destroyed. God doesn't want David to be destroyed. In fact, David is called a man after God's own heart. And it's interesting to me that a man after God's own heart actually needed someone else to point out his sin. Oh, yeah. And if you want a New Testament example, then look at Peter. Because Paul had to confront Peter openly about the way Peter was acting toward the Gentiles. 
because Peter was at, we need one another. But how we present what we see in another person's life has to be done for their good, not just for our own good. Not just because I want to give people a piece of my mind or I want to correct people. I mean, if you look at the way Esther presented to her husband, the king, what Mordecai was doing, she went through that same process. It was like, it's almost like the Jew doesn't want to walk up to someone and just point blank in your face, tell you what you're doing wrong. How different that is from our American culture where we thrive on telling everybody what they're doing wrong. In fact, that's what social media is built on. The idea that I'm going to tell everyone else what they're doing wrong. But maybe that's not the right platform. Maybe that's not the right way. Maybe there's a way that we can put in front of each other the things that we need for growth in a way that actually leads to each other's growth. Jesus also demonstrated it with the woman at the well. When he comes to her, the first thing he says to her is, will you give me a drink? And of course, her response is, uh, we hate each other. Why are you asking me for a drink? I mean, that's my version. You'd have to go back to John chapter 4 and read what Jesus actually said. But that's what she said. And then Jesus says, um, go call your husband. Well, I, I don't have a husband. Well, that, that's right. You've actually had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Uh, sir, I see that you're a prophet. <laughs> and I, I just love the beauty of this conversation. Jesus could have sat down at that well as a Samaritan who automatically hates him because he's a Jewish man. My perspective is right as a Samaritan, and yours is wrong as a Jew. And Jesus finds a way to interact with her and actually leads her, not only her to repentance, but the entire Samaritan village. So maybe if we as believers learn how to do it the right way at the right time for the right reasons, and we do all of that, then maybe we can bring salvation to an entire village the way that Jesus did. But hey, I mean, we can give people a piece of our mind. We can tell people the way it is. I just don't know that that's going to create a culture of confession. That's not making it easy for people to admit their mistakes or their flaws. Yesterday, I was at the, the, um, the hardware store, and I was picking up a few things, and there was a man in front of me that had called ahead to order paint. And uh, he was paying for his paint, and he's like, oh, is this interior? I forgot to tell you I needed interior. And he's like, uh, and the guy was like, well, I assumed, I mean, it's not really warm enough for you doing exterior, but uh, so I assumed you were doing interior, and I guess we probably should have checked with you. And, and the guy at the counter said, well, you can never underestimate the stupidity of some people. And instantly, I thought, you know, that's me. Like, I'm so quick to talk about the stupidity of some people and point. But what if I'm wearing a Christian T-shirt and I'm standing there and I make that comment and the person standing behind me then thinks that, well, I'm not going to confess my sin because I'm not stupid. See, every social media post, every flippant conversation, every word that comes out of our mouths is actually creating a culture around our lives that our kids hear and our spouse hears, that people in our church hear, that the community hears. And the question is, are we creating a culture where people are, are going to be able to confess? Or are they just going to conceal it? I don't want to confess. I mean, I already know how that person thinks of me because of what they're saying. This is the type of regret 
that we need to let into our lives. I mean, I hope that every one of us today has something to process and think about through that example. Because the only way we're going to change the city of Huron is if we change the way we're going about it. It's a form of insanity to do the same thing we've always done and expect a different result. And so maybe as believers, it's time for us to take a step back and make sure that we're dealing with the log in our eye before we deal with the speck in our neighbor's eye. Before we point out what other churches are doing wrong or other people are doing wrong, maybe we need to make sure that we're creating a culture where people want to confess their sins and their flaws. The same way Jesus did when he sat excuse me, at the table with them. So what, kind of, what type of culture are we creating? Are we inviting the correction of the Holy Spirit, the correction of others into our lives? So today we want to be awakened to our flaws, our faults. We want to be awakened to the grace, the mercy of God. And we want to be awakened to growth, to humility and to wisdom. One of the verses that I, I didn't read today from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When it comes to my perspective on other people, I'm learning that my perspective of them, even though I'm a Christian, even though I have the Holy Spirit living in me, is not always God's perspective. I really have to make sure that I ask him for help and say, God, help me to see this from your perspective. Because I know that I'm seeing this, but I'm only seeing a small sliver. In fact, Jesus also told a parable about the wheat and the weeds. And he told us as human beings, we can't pull out the weeds, the, the unbelievers, because we don't know who they are. Yeah, I know that there are scriptures that say you, that you can tell by the fruit of people's life, but ultimately every one of us is in process. And you don't know where someone is in the process. And so if we try to uproot someone because we have determined that they're wrong, we may actually damage wheat. And so Jesus is just cautioning us as the body of Christ. That doesn't mean we should never correct each other. Quite the contrary, we need to correct each other because... I can't correct myself without your help. Isn't that a dangerous statement to make in front of a whole group of people? But it's the truth. Because I, I don't see all of my own flaws and weaknesses. Or at least I don't always want to admit them. And we need each other at the table to be able to process through those things so that we imitate him better and better every day. Let's bow our heads and pray. As we close today's service, as we kind of process through what Arden has shared, what I've shared, what the scripture has shared with us, um, I want you to just take a moment and think about your life right now. Maybe some of you are just, you're battling regret, um, the type of regret that's maybe changed you to your past. Maybe you're at a place where... Um, you just can't get past a mistake you've made, a problem that you've created, something that's been done to you. As we pray today, I want you to put your hands out in front of you, and I want you to put that regret, that mistake, 
that problem in literally I want you to to visualize yourself putting it in your hands and you need to surrender it to God. There may be some things that you have done, some parts that you have played in that, and you need to just admit them. You need to come clean. Uh, Heather talked to us last week about being honest with God. Today, it's just time to be honest with ourselves. Be honest about the, the behaviors, maybe the culture that we're creating in our lives. Maybe the, the um, we're not creating a culture of confession. We're creating a culture where people aren't free to, to do that. And I want us to receive God's mercy and God's grace today. Um, and I want us to actually drink it in. I want us to take just a few moments and really allow him to maybe heal some wounds in our hearts. Maybe some wounds that have been self-inflicted. Maybe some wounds that have been inflicted by others. But can I, can I say it? Um, just because someone has said something that caused you pain doesn't mean they intended to cause you pain. And I think sometimes we forget that. We allow ourselves to build up walls between ourselves and others because we've maybe taken it through our perspective and not through their perspective. So I want to encourage you, just put your hands out in front of you, even as you're just sitting there. And I want you to take all of those choices that you've made, the things that maybe you think have tanked your life, maybe that have put you in a financial hardship, maybe that have ruined relationships, maybe you, you long to have a relationship with your kids, maybe with your spouse, maybe with your parents, and you, you've said something or done something, and uh, you, you feel like it's just irreparable. I promise you, with God, nothing is irreparable. And so I just want you to put every regret that you have in your hands today. And I also want you to put your flaws, your weaknesses, maybe the things that you often say about yourself. <laughs> just put them in your hands today. And recognize that your identity is not in your performance. Your identity is in Christ and who He is making you to be. He's already made you a new creation, but He's making you a new creation too. And so I want you to put those flaws, those weaknesses, and I want you to put the parts of your culture, maybe the culture of your home, the culture of your relationships, maybe the flippant words, I want you to put those things in your hand today, too. And we're going to allow the sorrow of God to do a work in our hearts today. And so, Father, today we welcome regret that comes from you. God, we welcome that godly sorrow because we trust you. God, we know that you are working for our good, that you have plans to prosper us and not to harm us, for, to give us a hope and a future. So, God, today we want to be fully awakened to our flaws, to our faults. And God, we know that in order to do that, we need to have relationships with one another because we need each other. God, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. God, we need each other. And we want to create a culture in our church and in our lives where we can freely confess our sins and our flaws, where we actually welcome people to have difficult conversations with us, to show us areas of our lives that maybe we're not seeing, maybe from their perspective. 
But God, in order to do that, we recognize we, we have to humble ourselves. We have to admit our flaws. We have to receive mercy and grace in a way that brings healing to our hearts for past mistakes, for past abuses, for past betrayals. God, we want to be made right with you. And we also want to live that out in our daily lives so that others can find that same hope that we found in you. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would take all of these words that I've shared today, the things that Arden has shared with us in this chapter, and that you'd use that to, to help us embrace that godly sorrow in our lives in a way that brings us to repentance and to victory. God, help us to create that culture in our lives and in our church. God, so that we can bring hope and life to this community. And we pray it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Wow, I don't know. Are you guys as excited to go out from here as an awakened people to do things the right way, the right time, and just for all of the right reasons. Man, I'm super excited. And we just want to thank everybody for joining, who joined us online today. For those of us that are in the room, hosts are going to come and uh, uh, 